All right, it's great to be with you tonight. Uh, how many of you were able to attend any of uh, morning service this morning? Okay, several of you, so you recognize me, hopefully, from that. When, when Pastor Keith and I were on the platform together, I was the tall one, just in case you didn't notice that. So, Actually, I've worked for two different uh, bosses through the years. Both were five foot three. So when I stood next to them, I felt awkward and they felt awkward. I felt less awkward than they did. But, um, you know, all that really matters is what's inside, right? I could have been born uh, a midget. Uh, are there any midgets in here? Okay, no. Okay, so I could have been really short. It really doesn't matter how tall you are, you know, how good looking you are, how bad your eyesight is, what color your hair is, you know, whether you root for the Red Sox and the Patriots like I do, or other things like that. No, nothing? Nothing? Wow, you're either really tired from the game or you're overcome from the fumes of the junior hires in the room, which is totally understandable. Okay. So tonight I want to talk to you about doubt and belief, because the truth is part of learning to grow into knowing what you truly believe is starting with doubt. Uh, the truth is all along the way, I became a Christian when I was nine years old, and all along the way as I grew in knowledge, if I never doubted, I never would have sought out good answers. Maybe you've heard the statistics that something like, I don't know, people make up statistics all the time. Like 60 to 80% of, of young people who are raised in the church, they get to college, they lose their faith. Have you ever heard that before? It, it's probably true, probably somewhere between 30 and 75% of young people do that. And I think one of the reasons why is they've never asked themselves, what do I really believe? How do I know this is true? They accept the faith of their parents, they accept it to be true, and the first time they meet someone else who doesn't believe it, it rattles them, it shakes them. Now some of you may be in public school, my son Ryan, who was with me yesterday morning and is studying at Lancaster Bible College, he does conferences with me sometimes, he went to CV for his last two years of high school, and he said he encountered a lot of skeptics and atheists, he was able to lead one to Christ in his senior year. Um, so you, you may be in that situation where you're around unbelievers all the time, so you may have doubts yourself. So tonight I'm going to give a short presentation that I really hope that you'd be willing to ask questions or text questions in, because I would like to uh, answer those questions to the best of my ability to help you know why you believe what you believe. Uh, again, I welcome any question, particularly related to your faith, what we believe, how to answer questions. I often talk about what about Christianity and other world religions? What about uh, how do we know that the Bible is true? How do we know Jesus rose from the dead? Uh, what about God and evil and suffering? That's what I talked about this morning in church. So there's lots of good questions. And the truth is, the more you ask those questions and search those things out, the more solid your faith will be. You'll be able to encounter unbelievers. I have a friend uh, who's running a conference right now in Philadelphia called the Pennsylvania Atheists and Skeptics Conference. He lives in Lancaster. We get together on a regular basis. He constantly is assaulting my faith. But because I've settled many of those questions or most of those questions in my heart through the study of the scriptures, I'm actually hopefully making a dent on him. He's trying to win me over to atheism, which is not going to happen. And I'm trying to share the truth of the gospel, which I believe can happen in his life. So let's talk about doubt and confidence. Let me ask you this. Maybe you can give me some ideas here. What causes Christians to doubt? What are some of the things that you, that you think might cause Christians to doubt their faith? Any ideas? Yes. Going through a hard time. Yeah, going through a hard time. Why, God? In fact, all through the book of Psalms, 
The psalmist write, Lord, why are you letting me do this? And they're wondering, God, are you good? Are you there? Someone else, what's another reason what, that might cause people to doubt their faith? Can you think of any others? Yes. Okay, in what way? Okay, yeah, them challenging you, or maybe you meet someone that's of a different belief system, and they seem really nice, and you're thinking, wait a second, am I right? I have uh, two married daughters and then my son, who's a junior in college. Every single one of them, at some point through their teen years, came to me, and I've been a, a college or seminary professor for the last 15 years and a pastor before that. They came to me and said, Dad, how do we know that we're right? Uh, each of my kids worked in the dining room of this uh, assisted living center with older people. And they worked with Hindus and skeptics and Muslims and others. And it really opened their eyes. They took every one of them when they turned 14, started working there. And they came home and said, Dad, uh, my friend is so nice. And yet he believes something totally different. How do we know that what we believe is true? So let me share a few of the reasons why people doubt. This is in your notes here. Sometimes meeting a real atheist or a real homosexual or a real Hindu or a Muslim that's not like you heard described can shake your faith. Now, the first time I became friends with a homosexual, um, I realized this guy is different than what I had described, and yet he actually was worse off spiritually than I ever could have imagined. Uh, some of my kids would meet atheists and they'd say, Dad, these atheists at work treat me better than my Christian friends do who are always saying terrible things behind my back. Uh, you might also have been told people of other religions are unhappy, and then you meet maybe a, a Hindu or someone of a different religion, and, and they're just happy people. And you're thinking, wow, I'm not, I'm not even this happy, and I have Jesus in my heart, right? And it shakes you. You start to wonder, is this real? Here's another one. Witnessing a godly person experience terrible suffering. Maybe you've gone through uh, the death of a grandparent who loved the Lord and was a godly person or a good friend. Uh, when I was in college in my freshman year, the, the most godly girl in our youth group when I was in high school was killed in a car accident right in front of my eyes. Uh, we were, went to college in Wisconsin. We were on our way to uh, work in a children's ministry in the next town over. It was November. There was snow blowing across the road. And there were two cars of college students on their way to this church. And they were about 30 seconds ahead of us. Uh, and it was blowing and windy and we couldn't really see. And all of a sudden we, we come on the scene of the Jeep they were driving and flipped over. Two of our friends are laying in the street dead. One of them was the girl I went to high school with. Another was severely injured and, and the driver was climbing out of the upside down Jeep. You see something like that, you say, Lord, why that person? She, she loved you more than anyone else. She was more godly than anyone else. And we can start to, to question, is there any purpose or meaning in all of this? Sometimes witnessing corruption and hypocrisy in a church or a Christian organization can make people doubt. And the truth is, in Christian organizations, in churches, sometimes there is corruption. And the reason is because... We're all sinners, and sometimes pastors and other people do really bad things. And if you're a young person, you can begin to doubt, like, boy, if the people that I'm supposed to trust are not even people of integrity, if they're even le leading a secret life or a double life, how in the world can I believe that my Christian faith is true? Here's another one. Finding an apparent contradiction in the Bible. Maybe you've read your Bible and you're like, I came across something that makes no sense to me. In fact, 
it seems to contradict and that can shake you because I'm sure your church like Lancaster Bible College, we teach that the Bible has no errors. And you can be shaken saying this looks like a real error or a problem to me. And then lastly, maybe experiencing cruelty and evil at the hands of a professing Christian. Maybe you have a friend in this youth group. She's talked behind your back or a guy that's done something awful. And you're like, man, you're supposed to not only be my friend, but my brother in Christ, my sister in Christ. It can make you doubt. Is any of this real? Are we all just gathered together for this spiritual experience every week? And, and how do I know that this is not just some phony thing that goes on? Take your Bibles and turn to John for a moment, the book of John. I'm sorry, Luke 20. Luke chapter 20. I want you to see there's a story in the New Testament of someone who doubted and serious doubts. I'm sorry, John 20. I was right the first time. John 20. In John 20, we have the story of Jesus after he's risen from the dead. You know, he was crucified on the cross. Three days later, he rises from the dead. He begins to appear to his disciples. And in one occasion, he appears to all his disciples, but Thomas, the disciple, wasn't there. And that when they see him, they say, Thomas, you should have been there. Have you ever had someone say that? You should have been there. You know, the concert was awesome, or Six Flags was awesome, or Youth Group was awesome, or, you know, my bar mitzvah was awesome. I don't know if there's any people that have bar mitzvahs in here. But can you imagine, post-resurrection, you still haven't seen Jesus, and he appears to all your friends, and you weren't there. And Thomas, what is his response? Look in John 20. And verse 25, the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. So here's Thomas. He's a doubter. He's like, I, I don't buy it. I don't believe it. I want to know for sure whether this is right or not. And uh, you know the story. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, All right, come on. Here's my hand. Stick your fingers in there. Here's the hole in my side from the spear. Go ahead. Reach up there. You feel my pumping heart. Um, you know, there it is right there. Um, I don't know if Jesus' heart was pumping after his resurrection, but he still had a physical body. And notice what Thomas says. Thomas realizes how foolish he was to doubt this. And he says, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen? Blessed are those who have seen and yet have not believed. So the truth is, doubting is something that's very common to us as people. It can be good doubt, but there can also be some dangerous kind of doubts. So let's talk about two kinds of doubt. Because again, I think if you never wonder about your Christian faith, I would say it's very shaky. You've got to wonder. You've got to say, I need to know what the Bible says. I've got to, I've got to compare Christianity and other religions. I've got to explore some of these uh, answers to our Christian faith so I know if it's true or not. Because here's one kind of doubt. It's dismissive doubt. Anybody have an idea what dismissive doubt might be? What does it mean to be dismissed by someone? Just sort of reject out of hand. You don't actually even consider it. Yeah. Like if someone were to walk up and say, uh, hey, Mark, can I help you carry something? No, get out of my face. That's kind of dismissive. Like, I don't, I don't even have time to think about it. Sometimes when people doubt what they believe, 
especially in the Christian faith, they doubt their Christian faith. They're doing it not really concerned for the truth. Notice some of the characteristics here. Dismissive doubt kills critical thought and creativity in solving problems. Uh, my, some of my favorite TV shows are those that are mysteries, where something happens, someone's killed, a crime is committed, and they begin to, to investigate, you know, whether it's Sherlock Holmes or, or shows like that. And it's the people with creative solutions that really think through it that find the solutions. But some people doubt, you might encounter that someone's, oh, I don't believe in God. You know, there's no evidence for his existence. I asked my skeptic friend, his name is Scott, and I said, Scott, what evidence would God need to give you in order for you to believe? And he was honest. He said, there's nothing that God could do to make me believe. That's dismissive doubt. That's where I don't care about the facts. I've already settled in my belief. This kind of doubt is also satisfied with a few emotionally charged arguments. Uh, there's a short video online of the comedian, British comedian Stephen Fry. And he's a he's an, uh, very overt, antagonistic atheist. And the interviewer asked him, what, what's going to happen if, uh, if you die and you wake up and you're standing before God? And this guy like, says some of the most blasphemous things. He's like, I'm going to tell God, you know, who do you think you are allowing all this evil and suffering in the world? Who do you, you're not worth worshiping. He's very emotionally charged. It's a powerful video because he, he's so angry at the God he doesn't believe in, which is interesting. And then this ignores serious doubt. This kind of dismissive doubt uh, ignores serious thought. Doesn't want to hear good arguments and good reasons. One of the things that we covered this weekend in the sessions is that there are good reasons for every challenge raised against the Christian life. In my own life, I felt the need to pursue that. I thought, I've got to know if philosophy, if uh, the nature of how the Bible was written, if science, if all these things, if there are serious challenges that can't be answered. So I studied philosophy at Villanova University. I did my PhD. I did multiple master's degrees. And every single one demonstrated very clearly that there is no challenge that can be raised against the Christian faith for which there are not good answers. But here's my frustration sometimes when I talk to unbelievers. They don't want to hear any of those reasons. If you can't produce God right here and now, then you have nothing to say. And truthfully, that's not how knowledge works. So here's another, well, here, here's a good quote here. Um, in John 6, Jesus stands before the Pharisees. This is right after the feeding of the 5,000, where he takes, you know, the little boy's lunch and he feeds 5,000 people from it. And after that, all this large crowd of people start following Jesus wherever he goes, because he's giving them free fish fillet sandwiches, right? See, I think Jesus should have included some chicken and fries and made a Chick-fil-A because then he wouldn't have been able to control the crowds. In fact, on the way here, I thought, oh, maybe I'll stop at Chick-fil-A for dinner. But it's Sunday. Oh, I admire so much that they close on Sunday, but I always hate it when I want Chick-fil-A on Sunday. So Jesus is feeding these people, producing miracles. And Jesus says to them, you're following me because of the free lunch. But what you need to know is you need me. I'm the bread of life. You need to be reconciled to God, and that only comes through me. So he tells them, I am the bread of life. You want physical bread, you need the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Notice the dismissive doubt here. The Jewish leaders grumbled about him because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. 
They said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say I've come down from heaven? And over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus does these amazing miracles, and they say, tell us who you are. He says, you know who I'm claiming to be. Give us another sign. I just did a sign. And sometimes we think, if I could just prove God to people, then they would have to believe. When Jesus was here on this earth, he was doing miracles they could not explain, and they still didn't believe. So the truth is, it's not always evidence that people are looking for. Sometimes they're just dismissive, and they don't want God to be true or to be real. Here's a positive kind of doubt. And I hope that in your life, if you do experience doubts, that you will turn them from dismissive doubts to investigative doubts. What is investigative doubts? These are the kind of doubts that motivate someone to seek the best arguments, to seek the best arguments for each belief system. That is, sometimes people who doubt, they go to really bad sources. They go to Uncle Billy's Bible blog and looks for answers there instead of going to really good answers. Now, Uncle Billy might have some good answers, but if I'm going to look for answers to a question, I want to go to the best source for those questions. Notice also this approach, this kind of doubt, pursues answers objectively. That is, it honestly says, I want to know what the real answer is to this question. If you've never read this book, they just made this into a movie. Has anybody seen the movie, The Case for Christ? Just came out? Okay. I think it's on Netflix already or something. It wasn't supposed to be like a big theatrical production. But this story is fascinating. Lee Strobel was an atheistic journalist. He worked in Chicago for the Chicago Tribune. He was the law editor. So he, all through the book, he weaves in murder cases and, and crimes and he shows how they got some innocent people off that were falsely accused and got guilty people convicted. But as an atheist journalist, his wife came to become a Christian. And he writes in here about how furious he was. Like, I can't believe my wife is like killing her intellect, sacrificing her mind to, to become religious. And so what he decided he was going to do as an investigative journalist was he was going to try to demonstrate to his wife that the Bible was not true, that Christianity was false. And so every chapter in this book, he goes to the world's leading experts in, for example, the resurrection of Jesus, the history of Israel in the first century, ancient archaeologists, all these different people. And he comes back at the end of the book. He, he talks about his testimony of becoming a Christian. He said, I could not deny that when I did my investigation that Christianity had more factual evidence behind it than any other belief system in the world. So if you've never read this book, let me encourage you. They also have a case for Christ for children, in case your you know, reading level is a little lower, like mine. I actually borrowed this from my wife. I can't read this. It's too high. Um, but they have one for children that's a little bit simpler. But do you know that that story of Lee Strobel has been repeated over and over and over again for hundreds of years? Uh, Simon Greenleaf, the professor of law at Harvard University about 100 years ago, went on the same quest as an atheist, became a Christian. Uh, this has happened at Oxford University in England, all around the world. These well-known scholars say, I've got to disprove Christianity. And when they do the actual research, they come back as Christians because there are good answers for those doubts. So here you say, where, where does doubt spring? Actually, notice in your notes there are doubters in the Bible. Notice the different kinds of doubters. Sarah doubted God's promise of a son because she didn't believe God could do it. And God rebuked her for doubting. John the Baptist, 
Remember the story of John the Baptist? He was Jesus' cousin. He came and preached before Jesus started his public ministry, telling people the one that's been promised is coming. And then once Jesus arrived on the scene, John the Baptist was arrested and thrown into prison. And he began to be a little disillusioned, like, what am I doing here in prison if I'm the cousin and the forerunner of the Messiah who's supposed to come and kick the Romans out of power and restore the glory of Jerusalem? Why am I in prison? So he sends a message to his cousin Jesus, and he says, are, are you the one that we were waiting for, or should we be waiting for someone else? And Jesus sends back a message and says, the blind are given sight, the dead are raised, the lame are healed. Blessed is he who doesn't stumble over me. That is part of John's problem was he, he had a different perception or idea of what Jesus was going to be. And Jesus said, you've got to correct your idea of who I am going to be. So notice what happens. Why do doubts come about? It's often because they spring from incorrect assumptions. Sometimes we believe that everything that we believe must be conclusively proven, scientifically proven. But the truth is that's not how life actually works, is it? Now, obviously, we like things to be scientifically proven. I want to know when I buy a, a computer that a scientist has designed it and built it and not someone who is really good at making things out of clay, right, or scrap metal. I hope it's a real computer. But you don't live your life always trying to prove everything. You don't you know, walk home from school and say, okay, now which house is mine? Because I can't trust my memory. How can I prove that this house is mine? I better pull out my wallet, look at my ID. Oh, this is my address. Okay, I know that this house is mine. You don't live that way. You, re you rely on your memory. You rely on your intuition. And the truth is not everything in life is proven in the same way other things are. That brings the next point. Sometimes we assume everything is proven the same way. How do I know that water is H2O? Well, because science has demonstrated it. How do I know what I had for breakfast this morning? Do I need to dissect? Do I need to empty the contents of my stomach and dissect them and study chemically? No, I, I trust my memory. I could ask my wife if I've forgotten. Hey, honey, what did I eat for breakfast this morning? Oh, a whole apple pie. Okay, thank you for letting me know. Which is a real possibility for me. My wife made a homemade apple pie today. We had seven college students over. All I got was this tiny slice. If, if you want to believe in injustice in the world, that is an injustice right there. Here's another assumption. Sometimes we assume if an argument for Christianity fails, examination, then there's no better argument to be made. That is, sometimes we think if, you know, if, if I ask you know, Dr. Farnham or my youth pastor or my pastor or someone to give me an answer and it turns out that they're wrong, well, then all Christianity has got to be wrong. I can be wrong, and I am wrong sometimes because I'm mistaken or I don't have enough information. Just because you've asked a question and someone's given a bad answer, don't throw out Christianity because of that. There are other places to find good answers. And here's another incorrect assumption that people often uh, find themselves practicing. If I don't want something to be true, that is enough to disbelieve it. See, what I found in talking to unbelievers is that many times after you answer their intellectual questions, what it really comes down is they don't want there to be a God. I don't want someone telling me what to do with my life. I don't want someone that I'm accountable to. And so sometimes when you give people answers for their intellectual objections, finally they'll say, well, fine, okay, so I can't disprove Christianity, but I don't want anyone to tell me to stop living with my girlfriend. And that's the real issue behind the rejection of Christianity. 
And the truth is just because someone doesn't want it to be true doesn't make it so. Let's keep moving there. Here's some things that doubters often fail to consider. Maybe you're here today and you are doubting your faith. I hope that you'll do it investigatively. But sometimes doubters, especially people who are raised in Christian homes or profess Christ or you're a real Christian but you're having doubts, sometimes they fail to consider important things like the the necessary inconsistency of unbelief. That is, if you don't believe in Christ, then whatever you do believe is going to be inconsistent. Here's an example. Some people will say, I will reject God for lack of evidence. That is, I don't believe in God because I'm angry at him. See how inconsistent that is? I don't believe God exists and I'm angry at him. Or I don't believe God exists, but when some tragedy happens, what do they put on Facebook? Praying for you. (laughs) Praying to whom? I thought you said God didn't exist. And the truth is because we are made in the image of God, and Romans 1 says we know that God exists. Every single person in the world knows God exists. When people say I don't believe in God, they can hardly help themselves from referring to God. Why do they use God's name in vain? You know, I never hear anyone say, oh, Allah. No, they don't do that. Oh, stinking Buddha. No, what do they do? They curse the name of God, right? They take God's name in vain. Oh, my God. You never see OMB, oh, my Buddha. You never hear someone cry out in anger, you know, uh, Joseph Smith, you know, the founder of Mormonism. What do they say? Jesus Christ. Why is that? It's because... They know deep down in their hearts that the one true God has spoken that they're accountable to him. And so at the same time they're saying they don't believe in God, they're angry at the God they don't believe in. Here's another one. I might like certain things about other religions, like Buddhism denies that suffering is real. But think about this. If Buddhism is is true, then I have no grounds to say, you know, you shouldn't kill all those people. You know, you shouldn't enslave people. Because Buddhism says that kind of stuff isn't real. So how can I be a Buddhist and then condemn injustice? How, if I'm a Buddhist and I don't believe suffering is real, how can I say that what happened in Las Vegas a couple weeks ago was wrong? Because it didn't really happen in the mind of a Buddhist. It's just an imaginary, illusory thing that we think has happened. I love this Calvin and Hobbes. Anybody like Calvin and Hobbes? Has anybody ever read the, art, the uh, panels where he talks about Calvin Ball? Calvin, the the little kid character in here, makes up a game called Calvin Ball where uh, the rules change every moment. So he's playing with Hobbes, and he shouts out, Ali, Wally, Polly, Woggy, Ump, Bomb, Fizz. And Hobbes yells, hey. Calvin says, ha ha, I stole your flag. But I hit you with a Calvin Ball. You have to put the flag back and sing the I'm Very Sorry song. I don't have to sing the song. I was in the no song zone. No, you weren't. I touched the opposite pole, so the no song zone is now the song zone. I didn't see you touch the opposite pole. You have to declare it. I declared it, a, uh, what's that word? A positively by not declaring it. Start singing. And then they sing the song. Here's the very sorry song. Won't you help and sing along? I blew it. He's sorry. I knew it. So sorry. I'm very, very sorry that I took your precious flag. Just don't do it anymore, you scurvy scalawag. And then he shouts, I'm free. I get free passage to Wicked Five. No, that's what we did last time, remember? And he stops and says, oh, yeah. Okay, the new rule is we have to jump everywhere until someone finds the bonus box. That's good. And then he says this. The only permanent rule in Calvin Ball is that you can't play it the same way twice. 
And then Hobbes says the score is still Q to 12. Okay? Now, as you read this, if you have little brothers and sisters, you know this is completely... Whoops, did I do that? I did it, didn't I? I unplugged it. Okay, thank you. If you have little brothers and sisters, you know this is how they play because they don't understand the importance of rules. Uh, I had a chance to watch the Patriots win today. It was wonderful. It's a testimony of the goodness of God in this world. <laughs> but let's say you're a football fan. I know you're not all football fans. Let's say you are. What happens if you begin to change the rules every minute in the game? What's that? Ask the goat. That's, oh, ouch. Okay, let's not have uh, the voice of Satan here tonight. <laughs> let's say one minute into the game, they replace the football with a basketball. And then suddenly, the sidelines don't matter. You can go as wide as you want. And in the third quarter, in the 12th minute, any field goal is worth 40 points. Eventually, would you want to watch that game after a while? I mean, maybe for the novelty to see what they're going to do in changing the rules. But after a while, I'd be like, this is dumb because none of it makes sense. And the problem with unbelief is that it is never consistent. You, as we said before, you have someone who denies the existence of God, then tells about how angry they are. Notice the logical implications of unbelief. Some people want to deny the existence of God, but don't realize that afterward I have no basis for arguing morality. That is, if God doesn't exist, I have no way to say something is wrong. I also have no way to say that your life has meaning. Uh, those of you who go to public school, my son always found this to be such a contradiction at CV. You have the character trait of the month being told you should, you should live this character trait perseverance or courage or kindness. At the same time, in other classes, you're being told there's no such thing as right and wrong. Well, which is it here? Because if there's no right and wrong, then why should I care about being compassionate? I should go for it and be the, the school bully because that'll get me ahead. It's got to be one or the other. And here's the inconsistency. Here's another one. Some people say, I want to be tolerant of all forms of sexuality. All forms? Well as long as there's consent. See, the problem is, where are you getting the idea of consent? If you reject the idea of God, if you, if you accept the idea that all forms of sexuality are okay, consent, you're making that up. You can't make things up. You've done away with any kind of universal moral law. So consent, that's your opinion. That's, you know, that's wonderful that you have your opinion, but you have no basis to say that that is right or wrong. And by the way, I do a lot of research in this area. Just recently, uh, universities are now questioning, where do we get this idea of consent? Why does that limit us in our sexual activity? It's terrifying, but it's a natural consequence of that approach. And then lastly, the weight of evidence on the side of Christianity. Uh, I've been talking online with a, uh, a former um, uh, friend of a student at LBC uh, she has decided to go into the lesbian lifestyle in Philadelphia, but she's willing to talk. So she types me questions about Christianity, and she's doubting her faith, of course, I think because her lifestyle is more important to her than what she believes. And uh, in asking a question, she, she said, how do we know that Christianity is even true? And the answer I gave her was, when you compare it to all other religions, None of them are based on historical fact. The Christian faith is based on hundreds and hundreds of historical facts that can be verified. And she, she wrote back, this is what she said, I never thought about that, that changes everything for me. 
She said, I thought we just had a religion like everything else where we hope this is true, we want it to be true, it comforts us. When we begin to talk about the actual historical events in the Bible that can be verified, she said, that does make it different. So the historical nature of the Christian faith. No one doubts that Jesus lived. Now, yes, there are people that doubt it. No historians of ancient history doubt that Jesus lived. They said, we know that Jesus was a Jewish man who lived in the first century, gathered a group of followers around himself, was crucified by the Romans, and three days later, the tomb was empty. Those are atheistic historians that say that. They don't believe in Jesus, but they can't deny that those things are true. And there are hundreds and hundreds of facts like that. Your Christian faith is not just built on wishful thinking. When you put your faith in what God says in the Bible, you're not, this is not a blind leap in the dark. So many things, hundreds if not thousands of things, can be verified in the ancient world. We have a faith that is built on fact. Here's another one, the cultural and historical impact of the Christian faith. Where did um, hospitals come about for the most part in the Western world? How were women's uh, place in society raised? Who started adopting and caring for children in orphanages? You look in history, it's all Christians. From the very beginning, the enemies of Christianity said, we think these people are nutso, but they rescue babies off the trash heap because in the ancient world, it was completely acceptable to, if you didn't want your child, just throw it at a trash heap, the dogs will get to the child. Christians would hang around in the dumps and rescue babies abandoned. They would find older people abandoned by their families and take them in and care for them. And even the enemies of Christianity said, we cannot deny that they care for one another. They show kindness. They look out for one another. They give generously to care for one another's needs. They elevate the role of women in their society because in the ancient Roman and Greek world, women were just property. What does Jesus do? He comes along, lets women be part of his inner circle of disciples. Not the 12, but outside the 12, the women were an essential part. And Jesus gives them the privilege of being the first to see him after he's raised from the dead. We can go on and on about all the different ways that Christianity has helped society. And then lastly, the ethical foundation of human rights or intuitive human rights. That is, most people around the world recognize that we should treat one another kindly. But in most of their belief systems, there's no real reason that they should feel that way, and yet they can't escape it. As Christians, we explain that because we believe everyone is made in the image of God. Everyone has worth and dignity, and we ought to treat them that way. 